0: Welcome to the New Books Network. One, two, one, two, three, four. We're so glad to see so many of you lovely people here tonight. We would especially like to welcome all the representatives of Illinois' law enforcement community who have chosen to join us here in the Palace Hotel Ballroom at this time. I certainly hope you all enjoy the show. And remember people that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive and survive, there's still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody. 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 Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Alright, we got a treat for you this week. This is a movie that everybody loves. Everybody! We know that you love it. It's what is it, Dan?
1: We're doing the Blues Brothers. Everybody loves it. As Elwood says, "You, me, them, everybody, everybody loves the Blues Brothers."
0: I I certainly love this movie. Uh, Dan, I know that you you sometimes recite this movie in your sleep, uh, but somehow we've never talked about this movie, which is why we're allowed to do it for the podcast. I don't know how I don't know how that, that how that's possible, but it's true. Um, I know you love it, but I don't necessarily know what you love about it. So I guess I'll start there. What do you love about it?
1: I love everything about this movie. So this is 1980, directed by John Landis, written by John Landis and Dan Aykroyd. There's a big story in Hollywood that when Aykroyd gave John Landis the script, it was something like, I don't know, like 700 pages long. And and I wish there was, you know, for all the times we have to watch these extra deleted scenes on on DVDs that aren't any good, I almost wish there was like a 20-hour version of The Blues Brothers what I want to say in the beginning is that it's very hard for people now to appreciate just how big John Belushi was. And I'm older than you. So it's probably harder for, for you to understand that. I mean, he was on the original SNL from 1975 to 1980. And even that is hard for people to understand because SNL is like a a ghost ship of its former self, but you got to put yourself back in time. This is pre cable TV. Like normal people were not up at 1130, like normal squares, Like, like me and my family, you weren't up at 1130. So just to stay up till 1130 was a big deal. Then we had a fight with my father over the TV because he would want to watch like the news again, you know? And and I'm like, no, like there's this thing on, right? And if you were really good, my father, let me turn it on. You literally never knew what they were going to do. So you might watch it. and It's Samurai Delicatessen. Samurai Night Fever. Samurai Night Fever or the Coneheads or something. And then everybody talked about it on Monday. And if you were one of the cool kids in school, you got to talk about what you saw on Santa Live. And if you were really cool, you would talk about what was on at like 1245, which meant that you made it all the way to one in the morning, which when you were a kid was like being on a New Year's Eve bender. I mean, it was, it was so exciting. So... This movie comes out in 1980. He dies in 82. I watched it with my kids who had no idea who John Belushi was and had no preconception of it. And they were still like, this guy's great. This movie still works. It's terrific. So I think this movie is not an over-the-top like masterpiece like Citizen Kane or Vertigo, but it's not trying to be, right? It's like, it's the kind of movie you said you end up seeing a thousand times over the course of your life. Um, I saw it for the show about a week ago and I was still resetting lines, even though I hadn't seen it for five years beforehand. It's a great movie, comfort food. It's big, it's a behemoth, not just for the million wrecked cars for which it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for a while, um, but for the, for the absolute joy of it. I mean, the guys in the band, they're not like these great actors, but they're all likable, they're all funny. Um, It isn't corny like an actor learning how to sing. Like these guys really commit. And and they did their songs on SNL, which were funny because they were never skits. There was never a skit of the Blues Brothers. Aykroyd and Belushi would come on and do a song. And you totally get the sense that they totally love this music and they want you to love it too. And you can't help but feel good when you see this movie.
0: I think that that's really what the structure of the movie is about, which is, um, okay, this is funny in four or five minute increments, but how could we, how could we make it sustainable? And it's every John Landis makes every smart decision you could to make it sustainable. It's like, okay, it's a, it's a picaresque uh, road movie. So we can do whatever we want. It's like, okay, well, who's going to be in it? Uh, I don't know. We'll get, um, do you know, Aretha Franklin? It's like, yeah. You know Ray
1: Charles, do you know James Brown?
0: Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll call Aretha Franklin. We'll get her to be in it. It's like, okay, uh, great. And then, um, you know, we, uh, okay, they're they're being chased by somebody. Who is it? It's like it's uh, her, his demented ex girlfriend. Like, well, who's that going to be? Does anyone know Carrie Fisher? Can somebody call Carrie Fisher? And
1: Let's add some Nazis. Let's add Henry. Let's add Henry Gibson and the Illinois Nazi Party. Yeah, let's get them after them too. I Hate
0: Illinois Nazis, but that that's and you get the sense that that's how the the structure of the movie is put together. But there's nobody in it that doesn't get it, right? So imagine being Carrie Fisher and you just came off of Return of the Jedi and you have the highest paid agent in Hollywood. They're like, okay, well, well, what will I be doing? Can I take a look at the script? It's like, you're going to fire a grenade launcher at, at John Belushi while he's in a car because you're uh, madly in love with him, but also want to kill him. They're like, it's sold. That's, <laughs> and that's every that's every yeah. bit part in this entire movie.
1: It's also a great movie for people who say they don't like musicals. I would show them this and they, you know, cuz cuz it is a musical, but it's a musical without the trappings of a Hollywood because Hollywood almost always gets musicals wrong. Except for Singing in the Rain, which this movie very much resembles in terms of its its exuberance and how much fun it is to watch and how if you turn this movie on at any moment just like Singing in the Rain, you're you're in. You got to watch the whole rest of the movie. This movie is such a feel good thing. Too often Hollywood musicals that they adapt from the stage like Oklahoma Or other ones they become like turgid and you get the big setup for the song and then the person breaks into song and too often it's like when the kids start singing in the holy grail at the window but here though um the songs are so naturally integrated and they're so exuberant and as soon as a like as soon as ray charles starts singing you're happy as soon as aretha franklin sings think you're happy how can you not be happy when you watch james brown or when you watch cab calloway during the actual concert
0: yeah i think the the brilliance of this movie i mean okay Obviously, every film musical has one thing that's different from a stage musical. And the thing that that that's different, even if it's obvious, we'll just say it out loud, is that when you go watch a musical, the person singing for you has to sing every single night and they could mess up, but they didn't. And if they do it on film, they had 2000 chances and they they're giving you the best of the 2000. So so here you go. And so there's some natural magic that's lost. But I think that what the Blues Brothers does well is they know that. So in order to make a movie musical, what they do is they put you in a situation where it's the ultimate music that you want to sing and dance to, but you're around other strangers in the dark. So you just have to kind of sit there and take it. There's something impossible about that. And I think John Landis knows exactly what he's doing to force you to watch Ray Charles without humming in the dark around other strangers.
1: Yeah, and the car chases, we could talk about those, are just like the musical numbers, right? So when they drive through the mall, that was so audacious when this movie came out. Everybody talked about the, did, did you see the Blues Brothers? Yeah, and the next line was, how about the part where they drive through the mall? And of course he's saying, disco pants and haircuts, you know, baby clothes, this place has got everything. Is that, that's so audacious too, because again, John Landis and Oh, right now, we've seen a million chase scenes on the road, and you're going to get some in this movie too. But what if we went through a mall? Welcome back. In part two, we talk about our favorite moments. There's so many favorite moments. And before we get to those, Mike, I just want to point out how refreshing is it to watch a movie like this? And it's hard to sometimes articulate what makes it better. But isn't it cool knowing that none of those car things are CGI?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, they it feels like they had the maximum amount of fun making the movie yeah. as they did for for me to watch it. And that definitely involved destroying many cars and enjoying it. Many when John cars. Candy
1: gets on the, when John Candy gets on the police radio, is hi. This is a what? What number are we? Car
0: thirty two.
1: This is car thirty two. Um, we're in a truck. So, what's your moment? What uh, there's a million moments, but what moment do you especially love from this movie?
0: Adult me, having done this for, with you for three years, wants to choose something that's meaningful to the film. uh but child me, having watched this movie at like twelve. Uh, wants to say the the part where they sing Rawhide behind the <laughs> behind behind the grill in the bar so that people can throw the bottles at them for three hours.
1: As a respectable film podcaster, Mike, you should pick the moment where John Belushi takes off his glasses and shows a certain vulnerability to the woman who both loves him and wants to kill him.
0: I should, I should, but the fact that the only song that they know that that the bar crowd will want to listen to is Rawhide, so they play it for three hours. And, and they stand never by your throwing,
1: man and stand by your man. Yeah.
0: And they never stop throwing beers at them. It's, that's incredible. I don't, I don't even know why that's so funny, but, but that, that in itself would make a great sketch. So they do things that are sustainable for four or five minutes. Uh, at a time but then they do like 70 of those and that's that's the blues brothers
1: right because of course remember when they sing rohide they're kind of non-committed like John Belushi's playing with the whip and Dan Aykroyd just stands there totally straight faced and when they do stand by your man it's funny because they do the hand gestures and that makes everybody laugh but um, you're right that's like a skit within the film
0: and, and the whole film, the whole film is really skits, but it gives you it gives you the impression. I mean, this this is something as cliche it, as it is, which is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Yeah. That, this is something which is 20 or 30 sketches in a row, but it becomes somehow a picaresque statement about the early 80s, which I'm sure John Landis knew he was, he was a smart guy. Um, but it seems it seems impossible to pull off. I mean, there's something there's something th- that feels lost, like you couldn't you couldn't remake the Blues Brothers. I feel like you couldn't.
1: You couldn't do it with Will Farrell as Elwood
0: and John C. Riley,
1: or like Chris Farley as Jake. Like, it, like first of all, Will Farrell would keep calling attention to himself, and the the whole fun of the movie is that Elwood is so straight. Like, like, he's like, "Who is that girl?" Or when they get like, they don't notice all the terrible things going on. Is that you know? I think this were made today. It's it so strange because when it came out, the movie sold the star power of these two guys from the coolest show on tv right and it was like come to the movies and and like you know animal house had already been made and that was unbelievable right but at the same time that their their performances of dan aquin and john belusi are so good because they're not running around saying look at me look at me like they're true to delivering this story about these two guys
0: i think what what they're trying to dramatize or, right. There's something about seeing Ray Charles when he works in the music store or something, or or seeing Aretha Franklin who they, they is a, is a fry cook. And then she starts to sing. It's right. What do musicians do in their off hours? What life, what life do they lead when they're not performing for us? And I think that the blues brothers, the joke of the blues brothers is they eat dry toast and coffee, but then they get on and, and some kind of transformation happens and the transformation start starts when the music starts.
1: That's why it's funny when they go to the house, when they're trying to find the band members and that woman says, uh, are you the police? No, ma'am, we're musicians. Because they're very serious about it. But you know what you just made me think of is that the movie does something really, really well. It's that John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and the whole crew of making this movie behind them, they know that when those two guys go to church, and the, and you see James Brown as the preacher. The movie knows James Brown is the star of this moment, and that you're not watching John Belushi, a big star in this movie. Like there are bigger stars in this movie than John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, and the movie totally understands that.
0: But they spend a lot of time watching, right yeah. the the whole the whole Aretha Franklin thing. Yeah, they sit they sit there and watch. But they've had their jokes before. That's the four fried chickens and and yeah. dry toast, and you know anything to drink with that a Coke.
1: Nothing from Asians to Coke. So my moment has to do with that because my moment is when they're trying to stall the crowd at the big concert at the end and Jake and Elwood are late. They're trying to get there and Cab Calloway is supposed to be the front man and he looks at the band and he says, we got to give these people something. We got to get this crowd under control. So he says, how about many of moocher?" And he spins around and says, hit it. And as you remember, when he spins around, he's wearing a tuxedo. They all have those cool things in front of them that say BB, like the old, and they're all dressed up. But it just happens and it's not explained. And that's such a great moment to bring a smile to your face because it's the kind of thing that only movies can do. So you said before, like when you see things on stage, there's things that you can only see on stage. But only a movie, and this is very much like Singing in the Rain, can have a guy spin around and they're all in tuxedos. And you're like, this defies physics and logic, but I'm totally all in.
0: Yeah. And I I think that there's so many beautiful things that this movie managed to commit to film, including uh, John Belushi being funny just in time before they were before they were lost. Like like having Cab Calloway on film doing Minnie the Moocher, you know, right. There's something preserving a certain moment that got there just in time. Uh, And it, it should have had more time, but at least there's you know, you can watch the Blues Brothers anytime you feel like it.
1: And a, and a, and the, the signature element of this, which makes it so good is that when they're doing the concert and you've been talking about this concert for an hour and a half in the movie and they finally get to do the concert and they sing, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. Like, it's so good. And part of you was like, yeah, okay, they have to deliver the $5,000. But like, can you just guys do like four or five more songs, please?
0: No, you got you got to wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then and then it delivers, right? Because when when it's their turn to be the star's, they totally can do it. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. I don't think we have much room on the title here. So what's your key takeaway?
1: We love movies where a team is assembled to complete a mission. So we've talked about The Wages of Fear. We've talked about Seven Samurai. We've talked about Dirty Dozen. There's a million of them out there. And sometimes at the end of these movies, you get this ironic commentary by the director or by the movie itself about whether or not the mission was worth it, right? Or you're told how to feel about the mission. So at the very end of something like Save a Private Ryan, Tom Hanks looks at, at, at um Matt Damon and says, you know, earn this, earn this. Like That's what this mission meant. Here it's it's so it's so uh, delightful that the mission is completed. Steven Spielberg stomps the thing is paid, and they're in jail. And never never in movie history have you been more happy to see the lead characters go to jail or have such a good time in jail. They're in they're in Juliet and they're singing Jailhouse Rock, and all the prisoners get up and dance. It's as it's as fantasy of a prison as you're likely to see anywhere in a movie. But you're so happy that they did it, and you're you leave the movie in such a great great mood.
0: Yeah, a prison is a universe where people don't spontaneously burst into song, right? A a prison is a universe where you go to the diner and you're not served by Aretha Franklin, who's going to start singing or you go to church and you don't find James Brown. That's what prison is. And so that I think that's why you leave in a good mood or the universe of the film does has has no language. It doesn't really have a structure for for it to be a downer.
1: Yeah, Johnny Cash's great albums, Live from San Quentin and Live at Folsom, which are also dramatized really well in Walk the Line, the film with uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash. You know, those albums are great, but they're great because they also play into the despair of the audience. So when he sings Folsom Prison Blues in Folsom Prison, there's a layer of irony there that you really can't access because you don't don't know what it's like to be in prison thinking of rich folks out in fancy dining cars. But here, though, it's just so exuberant that you're so happy for them. The credits come on
0: and you're like, what a great movie. Always leave them wanting more. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, You can follow us on
1: Twitter or X at 15MINfilm. And you could follow us where else, Mike?
0: Letterboxd.
1: Letterboxd. Very said very much like Elwood. How would Elwood Where can you follow us? Letterboxd. Letterboxd. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.